Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read from, if the pages were not stuck together, from verse 12, Romans chapter 8 and verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Last time we were looking at this chapter, we were looking at those verses from 12 onwards, looking at what the Spirit of God does in us. We saw a number of things that the Spirit of God does that Paul mentions there. He, he helps us to mortify or to put to death the deeds of the body. He leads us. Those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. He assures us that we belong to God, and through Him we cry, Father. We were seeing the various things that the Spirit of God does, and he, uh, the, that last thing, he, he assures us that we are God's children. Paul then takes that on in verses 17 and 18, the verses we're going to look at this morning, what it means to be children of God, what it means to be God's children. Of course, we need to be aware that not all human beings are God's children. We're all created by God, but that doesn't mean that everyone is a child of God. It's those who are led by the Spirit who are children of God. We need to be born again. We need to uh, accept Christ as our Savior, repenting of our sin, believing in what Jesus has done to be born again and become God's children. And when we are God's children, then Paul says we are heirs Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. What does it mean to be an heir of God? This idea of having an inheritance is something that you'll find right through the Bible, right throughout Scripture. Back in the beginning, for example, in Exodus chapter 32, you get a sense there of the, uh, the inheritance that was ahead. Moses is praying to God for Israel. God is Uh, angry with the people. They've just made a golden calf. We don't need to look at that story, but in the course of Moses praying for the people in Exodus 32 and verse 13, he says, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. For the people of God, having come out of slavery in Egypt, they had a sense of an inheritance, and the inheritance for them was the land that God had promised. And that promise kept them going through 
wanderings in the wilderness and so on. There's a sense of an inheritance, something that they're going to come into. But of course, they then came into the land, they conquered it, it became theirs, but they still had a sense of there's something ahead. There's an inheritance that God has got for us. It it broadened out from simply possessing the land. And in Isaiah 61, for example, you'll find a reference to that, although there are many others that we could look at. Isaiah 61 and verse 7. The prophet says, Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. It goes beyond just now possessing a country. It's now something that God is going to do for them. Everlasting joy will be theirs. A double portion. There's a sense of God's got more. And what God has got is the inheritance that they are believing for. And that is there through the New Testament in Matthew chapter 25, Matthew 25 and verse 34, Jesus is giving a teaching here about how it's going to be when the Son of Man comes, and he says he will separate the sheep from the goats. And it says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. A future inheritance. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. God has got more. Throughout Scripture, the focus is always future. So it's very appropriate then that Ginny brought the word that she brought this morning about we're always on the threshold of something new. We live in a new day and the focus is always future. It is all the way through Scripture. Abraham was looking into the future. The prophets were looking into the future. The New Testament is looking into the future. There's an inheritance. There's something that we're going to come into. And of course, the New Testament ends with the book of Revelation, where John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and God says, come and I'm going to show you what is yet to come. There's an inheritance. There is more. Now, when Paul speaks about that here, He is saying the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. And if we're children, then we're heirs. The Holy Spirit is involved in showing us our inheritance, bringing us into that inheritance, assuring us of our inheritance. It's the Holy Spirit who assures us that we're God's children. And incidentally, last time we were looking at that, I said it is so foolish and dangerous for us to ever try to assure someone that they're a Christian. It's the Holy Spirit who assures. And it's been, well, I have to say, it has been wonderful since then. A number of people have come to me to, to talk about that and to talk about their doubts and to be able to talk with people. And here then, actually they know they've been led by the Spirit. And they know the Spirit of God has led them. And so, yes, those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. People have actually said that they want to get assurance from God. Well-meaning people can say, oh, I'm sure you're a Christian. No, we need to know God saying he's put his seal on us. he's, He's put his Spirit in us so that we know that we belong to him. We need to be sure of that. And when we receive the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God is leading us, 
He's leading us to an inheritance. He assures us of that inheritance and he guarantees that inheritance. Paul speaks about that more than once in 2 Corinthians, for example. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 21 says, He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The Holy Spirit is a down payment assuring us of the inheritance that is ahead. It is still ahead. There is more ahead for us than we can experience in this life. But the Holy Spirit brings some of that to us. He is the down payment. He is the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Paul speaks about it also in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Now, what is this inheritance? Well, here in Romans 8, Paul says about sharing in his glory. If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And then he goes on to say, in order that we may share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The, the, The inheritance is to share Jesus' glory and that glory Paul says here, will be revealed in us. Some versions say will be revealed to us. Neither of those translations actually gets the meaning of it because it's very difficult to translate. Literally, it would say the glory that will be revealed into us. So this says in, others say to, put them together and you get what it actually says, into us. But what does that mean? Paul seems to be trying to convey that there's glory ahead And that glory is not just going to be shown to us, it's going to kind of reach out and include us. We're going to be into that glory, that glory is into us, it's going to catch us up and we're going to be part of it, sharing in his glory. In Jesus' great prayer that's recorded in John chapter 17, that was one of the things that he asked his father In John 17 and verse 24, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And yet in John chapter 1, right at the start of John's gospel, John says this uh, in verse 14, the word became flesh, that is Jesus became flesh, made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there John is saying, we've seen his, Jesus became flesh, made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there John is saying, we've seen his glory. In John 17, Jesus is praying, Father, I want them to see my glory. Clearly, when the disciples saw Jesus, they saw someone unlike anyone else. They saw something of the glory of God. But what Jesus is praying here is, there's more. There's more. There is that unveiled glory. That unveiled glory as God 
that the disciples had not seen. They got a glimpse on that mountaintop where Jesus was transfigured before them, momentarily seeing something, but they hadn't seen his real glory. They'd seen something, but there was more. And Jesus here is praying, Father, I want them to see that. And what Paul is saying here is, we are in Christ, and because we're in Christ, when he is glorified, We are in Him and we share in His glory. That glory is revealed into us. We get caught up into that. That is the inheritance. That is what is ahead. Now, here in Romans, Paul has already referred to that in chapter 5 and verse 2. He said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here in chapter 8, again in verse uh, twenty. Uh, In verse 30, rather, he says, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. There is this that is ahead, and Paul refers to it more than once, he refers to it in other letters. In other words, this is something that thrilled him, this is something that motivated him, this is something he is pressing towards. He even says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, when he's talking about some of the things that he has suffered, he says in verse 17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what's seen, but what's unseen. For what's seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Paul has suffered a lot, but he says these are light and momentary troubles compared with this weight of glory this eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He says that's what we choose to think about. Now, the Holy Spirit brings us some of that, a down payment. But in bringing some of that to us, the Holy Spirit also would awaken our appetites so that we say we want more. We want to press towards that. We want to know what it's all about. Uh, still in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 4, we read that, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, and verse 18, Paul says there, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit brings that to us. Now, I wonder if you're thinking... What on earth is all that about? Yeah, we can say the words. We can look at all the Bible verses. We can see that Paul very frequently refers to this. Clearly, it's something that motivated him. And we can say, what's he talking about? Well, one thing we do know is Paul knew what he was talking about. And not only Paul, but the other apostles also used similar language. They knew what they were talking about, and they could assume, they could take it for granted that when they write these things, the people reading those letters also know what they're talking about. Which then leads me to an uncomfortable conclusion, that they knew something that perhaps we've lost, that their idea of what Christianity is was rather different from our idea in the 21st century. They can talk about 
the Holy Spirit being a down payment of the inheritance that's to come, and the inheritance that is to come is glory, and we think, what's that then? And what is this down payment? Are we experiencing that? And where Paul says we're being changed, one degree of glory to another. What's he talking about? Do we know that? Well, I tell you, as I've been meditating on that through this week and thinking, well, what is it? Do, I was thinking, how am I going to talk about this when people are going to stare at me with blank incomprehension? That is what I thought would happen, and it's happening. So, what, what does it mean? Well, I tell you, at the start of this year, my, one of my resolves is, I want to know what that means. And I would invite you to join with me in discovering what does that mean. As far as the New Testament is concerned, that's authentic Christianity. That's what we've come into, where there is glory ahead that impacts us. It's as if you're out on a dark night, and uh, no street lights, it's dark, and then someone opens their front door and light streams out. As you look at that, that light will shine in your face, and as you move towards it, it will light you up more and more. We're living in a very dark world. It's ruled by the prince of darkness. We live in a dark world, but what Paul is saying here, there's a door opened over there. Right in the future, there's a door open, and light is streaming out of it. There is glory streaming out of it, and as we look towards it, our faces are changed. It lights on us, and as we move towards it, it lights on us more and more. That's what Paul's talking about, and that's what motivates him. He's looking into the future, and he wants to know it. He's drawn towards it, and the Holy Spirit is leading him. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are God's children, and the Spirit of God gives us a deposit, a down payment on what is to come. He awakens appetite, he excites us, he draws us. There's this glorious hope. And that's unique for the church. It's unique for God's people. Uniquely on planet Earth, we have hope. There is no hope elsewhere. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 of those who who don't know God, he describes them in those very stark terms. In Ephesians 2 and verse 12, he says, without hope and without God in the world. Without hope without God in the world. I've been interested to see the, the kind of statements, the speeches being made at the start of this year, warnings to be on our guard, terrorist attacks are possible. Some have been thwarted just over the Christmas period, but the warnings are there. We've got to be on our guard. There are those who would attack our nation. There's also, of course, economic troubles. As we look into the future, as the world looks into the future, you can only look into the future with very great fear. What could go wrong next? What could happen next? Where will the next outrage be? But Paul says here, you haven't received a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. The world is gripped with fears, and rightly so. It is a dark world. But we haven't received a spirit who makes us a slave again to fear. We've got a spirit of sonship. And that means heirs. There's an inheritance. There's a hope We have hope. The world around us really daren't look into the future. But we can't stop looking into the future. 
we face the future with glorious hope. And that hope shines into our faces. That's how Paul is putting it it here. And I don't know about you, but I want to know what he's talking about. And I want us together to begin to know more and more about this down payment of glory, this down payment of our inheritance that is actually shining in our faces. Now, you will have noticed as I read verse 17 that I carefully missed out some words. It says, we are children, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, in order that we may also share his glory. Of course, the words that are missed out are also very important. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Those two ideas don't seem to fit together. And yet, very often those two ideas are put together in the New Testament. Sharing in his sufferings and glory. Our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. If we are joined with Christ, God's children, co-heirs with Christ, if we're joined with Christ, we will share his glory, but we share in everything else as well. And we also share his sufferings. As far as the New Testament is concerned, you come then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, in order that we may also share his glory. Of course, the words that are missed out are also very important. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Those two ideas don't seem to fit together. And yet... Very often, those two ideas are put together in the New Testament. Sharing in his sufferings and glory. Our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. If we are joined with Christ, God's children, co-heirs with Christ, if we're joined with Christ, we will share his glory, but we share in everything else as well. And we also share his sufferings. As far as the New Testament is concerned, you can't have one without the other. We would rather make that a kind of multiple choice and go for one and not the other, but they go together. What God has joined together, we can't separate. If we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The Christian message is about an inheritance. The Christian message is about the light of the future shining into our faces, but it is not about all problems being solved. The Christian message is not about all hurts being healed. It's not about a kind of blinkered optimism. Indeed, in, well, there are so many references, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul puts it starkly. He says uh, to Timothy uh, chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, do you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? I could even ask for a show of hands, because if you didn't put your hand up, that would be a bit awkward for you. Do you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Yes. I hope that's what I hear coming back. Or maybe because you've seen the rest of the verse, you're not so sure. Everyone 
who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There it is. No way around it. There it is. It's a statement. Why? Because we're in Christ. And because the world hates him and we're in him. That's the deal. Now, it says sharing in his sufferings. Obviously, there are some sufferings that are unique to Jesus and that we will never share. He was crucified. That was not unique to him. He was one of three being crucified that day. What he suffered physically was not unique to him. Others have suffered. Others were suffering like that with him. But what was unique to him was he suffered God's holy wrath against sin. And he suffered that as our substitute, taking our place so that that is something we will never know. We never need to experience any of it. We don't add to it. What he did was sufficient, complete, and unique. We don't share that suffering. That's the wonderful gospel message. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He took it. He suffered it. We don't. He is our substitute, our sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, unique to him. However, other things that he suffered, we share with him. He was rejected from the moment of his birth, thinking about that just a week ago. There was no room for him in the inn. He was rejected from birth, rejected through his life, rejected at his death. The scripture speaks of him in Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53, uh, and around verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Then goes on to say he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yes, that was unique, what he did there. But despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, that was his life. Now, one commentator has said we read many times of Jesus speaking about his soul being troubled, about him weeping. But one commentator said, but we never read of him laughing. Well, actually, we never read of him yawning, but I guess he did. So the fact we don't read of him laughing doesn't mean to say he never did. But the point is, we do often read of his tears, of his sorrow, of his grief. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Why? Despised and rejected. That was his life story. All the way through his life, he encountered hatred, hostility, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, people just arguing back, taking what he said and twisting it, uh, making it into something he never said. That was his life. Until finally, the hostility erupted in him being killed. Yes, he was the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. Behind all of that is God's purpose, him dying in our place. But the suffering was the suffering of a dark world that hates God. And we are in him. Right through his life, troubled, weeping over Jerusalem, finally coming to the garden saying, my soul is troubled. And he wanted his disciples to pray with him. They couldn't understand it. 
But he was troubled. And then finally dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A man of sorrows. Now, Peter witnessed that and failed his Lord at that point. Peter couldn't face it. He protested he would. He said, I'll, I'll die with you, Lord. But when it came to it, as you know, denying him, that affected him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 11, he refers to the prophets who were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointed when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's the life of Jesus for Peter. Suffering, but glory that follows. Jesus, a man of sorrows. Why? Because it's a world that is hostile to God. It was then. It is now. The mindset of this world is contrary to all that God says, contrary to the truth. The mindset of the world opposes God at every turn, refuses to accept that God created the world, insists the world created itself. There is no God. Matter creates matter. God is not the creator. Ruling God then out of being the creator, he's ruled out of any part of life. So now in our country, as the persecution does begin to come, we're told now, keep your faith to yourself. It mustn't affect how you work. It mustn't affect your daily life. There's just total opposition to God, opposed to God as creator, opposed to God as the one who says what is right and what is wrong. Morals as taught in Scripture now denied. You're almost not allowed to say these things. The concept of gender, the concept of marriage, the concept of how to bring up children, everything that God has said, all the wisdom of God, our dark world opposes it with increasing severity. Well, what do we do? We love God. The future is drawing us. The light of the future, we're going for God. The world will hate us. It hated him. It will hate us. It will persecute us. Significantly, I guess, as I've been preparing this and meditating on it and uh, seeing this about his sufferings, I've also had some phone conversations this week with a very dear friend of mine who has suddenly, because he is serving God, encountered cruel persecution. Phoning me, please pray. You think, yeah, suffering is unjust. But if you love God, anyone who will live godly they will be persecuted. That's the deal. It doesn't happen all the time, but it will happen. Now, that's Paul's message. When he's talking here, and, and really, this chapter is meant to be good news. There is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're joint heirs with Christ. But Paul has to, has to be honest here. If we share his sufferings, it is not a multiple choice. We can't say, well, I'll opt for the glory, but I think I will not believe for the suffering. The two do go together. And we need to understand it. And we need to be prepared for it. If we're not ready for it, then we'll be blown completely off course. We can have wonderful teaching about healing. We can have wonderful teaching about hurts being dealt with and so on. Yes, God is gracious. He loves to do those things. But we also need to have teaching about suffering and death. To understand that is part of our deal. That is part of the truth. We are called, actually, to endure suffering 
because of the glory that is ahead. This is, as far as Paul is concerned, life in the Spirit. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. Life in the Spirit, mortifying the body, being led by the Spirit of God, and looking to the future, pressing towards that, because the light of it is attracting us. And as we press through, knowing the world is against us, cruelly against us, and will attack. And who knows what attacks may come this year. We're pressing on. We're pressing on because this is life in the Spirit. The Spirit of God encourages us. The Spirit of God empowers us. The Spirit of God draws us on. We can't turn back. We've seen something that is precious, and we must go forward. But there will be attacks. There will be... That's the deal. It happened to Jesus. So our perspective, or Paul says here in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When Paul says, I consider that, that's a word that that talks of, of thinking something through, reasoning. It's as if Paul says, I've thought about this, I've thought about it deeply, I've weighed it up, and I've come to this conclusion. That's all contained in that little word, consider. I've thought deeply about it. I've come to this conclusion that the sufferings of this present world aren't worth comparing with the glory of that future world. There are these two things. He's weighing them up. Is it worth pressing through? Is it worth going for suffering? Is it worth enduring the hostility that Jesus had to endure and he calls us to take up our cross and follow him? Is it worth it? Well, he says, it's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. See, the Spirit of God is revealing some things to him. Unless you've got that revelation, you can't weigh it up like that. But he's weighing it up like that. He's seen something. He says, I'm fixing my eyes on what's unseen. And and the value of that, the preciousness of it, makes him come to this conclusion. I consider, I've, I've thought about it, I've weighed it up. This is my conclusion, that the sufferings of now, of this present age, just don't compare with what's there in the future. We need that perspective if we are to cope. If we're to keep going and not get blown off course, we're not going to suddenly think, I thought God loved me, (laughs) just when a bit of trouble comes. You've got to understand, this is the gospel. This is our saviour. This is who we are in, and we're following him. We're going with him, whatever people say. Now, This chapter is about life in the Spirit, and uh, Paul has been contrasting the flesh and the Spirit. We're not subject to the flesh, we're subject to the Spirit. And of course, the flesh is in conflict with the Spirit. The flesh will embrace enthusiastically our fun-loving culture. We're living in a culture here in the UK that is totally given over to fun, to, uh, some of them call it, amusing ourselves to death. Entertainment, fun. Now, if that's the value system that you've taken on, uh, that you've embraced, you will not cope with this. You think, this doesn't sound fun. You know, you, you find church leaders trying to present everything as fun. You know, we're going to do some evangelism. It'll be fun. 
We're going to have a prayer meeting. It'll be fun. Everything's got to be fun. And if it's not fun, no one's going to do it. I looked up the word fun in my concordance. There's a lot of words in this book. Do you know, in this version anyway, the word fun appears once. I was surprised that it was that frequent. But it appears once. And it appears in Acts chapter 2 when they're speaking in tongues and the crowd made fun of them. That is the only reference to fun. That's how committed God is to fun. There's a lot of other words in here. We live in a culture that has sold out to fun. Entertainment, laughing, ignoring reality, partying, not praying. That's what it's about. Let's have fun. If that is our value system, frankly, we've had it. We will not press through. We've got to see that there is something precious here. That's what Paul has been gripped by. He's been gripped by the love of God. The the, the love of God has embraced him, and he cannot embrace a fun-loving world. He cannot live for such superficial values. He has seen something of great value. It's that door that has opened, and the light is streaming out from that door into the darkness of the world, and Paul is gripped by it. The glory of God, the love of God, this wonderful Savior who came, lived, and died, taking the wrath of God in our place. This has gripped him, and he is pressing through. The flesh embraces fun and resents cost. The Spirit encourages us. The Spirit empowers us. The Spirit leads us, draws us into more. The Spirit shows us that belonging to Christ is more precious than anything else this world can ever offer. Jesus is more precious than any other pleasure, any other relationship, any other love. He is supreme. For Paul, that's the gospel. For the other apostles, that's the gospel. The sheer supremacy of Christ, the sheer preeminence of Christ, where he is now in glory, there for us. He's prayed, Father, I want them to see my glory. Paul is saying, I want to see that. I want to be there. And so, yes, I will share in his sufferings. Indeed, Paul seems to regard it as a bit of a privilege. It's almost like suffering is the badge of honor. When we suffer with Christ, it means hell has recognized we're identified with Christ. Hell feels it worth attacking us as it attacks Christ. It's our badge of honor. This is the authentic now. We really do belong to him. We are identified with him. Look at the opposition. Now, there won't be opposition all the time. But in this present world, there is suffering. That's what Paul is saying. It's not all the time, but it's there. The world hates Christ. And if we love Christ, if we're in him, the world will hate us. There will be opposition. To suffer for him, then, is like having the medal pinned on your chest. Hey, this is the real thing now. I belong to him. So what are you looking for this year? Well, I believe God wants us to press into the future 
And I believe that God has got so much more for us in terms of this down payment, this deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, life in the Spirit. What does it mean for God's glory to rest on us? I want to know it. I invite you to join with me in knowing that. And in it, there will be some tough times. There will be misrepresentation. There will be attacks. They don't throw us off course. You know, that's what we're called to. And we've come to something of eternal weight. We've come to something that is much more significant than anything this world can, can do to us. We need to get our vision restored. We're for Christ because Christ is for us. Let's pray.